0: Welcome to True Crime Garage, wherever you are, whatever you are doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me, as always, is a man that would like to remind us all that you can observe a lot just by watching. He is the
1: captain. And I'd like to remind you that playing a game of Flicky Flicky in public is a crime. It's good to be seen, and it's good to see you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend.
0: Tonight we are drinking Secret Stairs by Trillium Brewing Company. Garage grade, four and a quarter bottle caps out of five. Secret Stairs is Trillium's signature stout. It's bold, balanced, and very satisfying. It's not too sweet or syrupy. There's an earthiness with bitter cocoa hints, which makes Secret Stairs awesome. And this wonderful beer was brought to us by these good, good peeps, Right here, first up, we have Amanda from Baltimore, Maryland. And a big shout out to Nicole
1: from Rahway, New Jersey. Next up we have Mario at the tattoo studio and parts unknown. Yeah, Mario just gave me an awesome tattoo of a moose mowing grass
0: on my ass.
1: We also have Marianne Lee,
0: she is in beautiful parts unknown as well.
1: And a big we like you, Jib, to Ryan in Belmont, New Hampshire.
0: I'm gonna go out west and fist bump this guy, Jason from California. And last but not least, we have Christina and Bothell, Washington. Thanks to everybody for filling up the fridge for this week's show. If you want to help us out with next week's beer run, go to truecrimegarage.com and click on that donate button. And that's enough.
1: For the business.
0: That's right, everybody. Gather around, grab a chair, grab a beer. Let's talk some true crime.
1: Emergency. 1810 Cedar Street, please. What's wrong? My wife had an accident. She's still breathing. What kind of accident? Down the stairs. She's still breathing. Please. Is she conscious? What? Is she conscious? No, she's not conscious. Okay. How many stairs did she fall down? How many stairs? Stairs. How many stairs? Calm down, sir. Uh, Calm down. No, uh, fifteen, twenty. I don't know. Please, get somebody here right away. Please. Okay, somebody's right. dispatching the ambulance you're while right. I ask you questions. It, it, it's 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 a forced kill. Okay, please, please, please.
0: Kathleen Peterson was born February 21, 1953 in Greensboro, North Carolina. She grew up in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and graduated first in her class at high school. Also voted Girl of the Year. So it's quite obvious she was well-liked and respected by her fellow classmates. She moved to Durham, North Carolina to attend Duke University. It's been reported she was the first female student accepted into Duke's engineering school. So a very bright young woman. She met her first husband, Fred Atwater at Duke. They had a daughter, Caitlin. Their marriage did not last. Later. She met Michael Peterson. Michael graduated from Duke as well. After extensive schooling and education, Peterson took a job with the U S department of defense to research military involvement in Vietnam. He also had a first marriage to a lady named Patricia Sue. She taught elementary school on the Rhine main air force base in West Germany. They had two children, Clayton and Todd in 1968, Peterson enlisted in the Marines and served in Vietnam in 1971. He received an honorable discharge with the rank of captain after a car accident left him with a permanent disability. Michael and Patricia lived in Germany for some time. There, they befriended Elizabeth and George Ratliff and their two children, Margaret and Martha. Now, unfortunately, George would pass away, and after his death, the Petersons and the Ratliff families became very close. When Elizabeth Ratliff died in 1985, Michael became the guardian of her two children. After Michael and Patricia divorced in 1987, Clayton and Todd, the two sons, went to live with their mother, Patricia, and Margaret and Martha stayed with Michael, who then moved to Durham, North Carolina. Clayton and Todd would later also join their father. Okay, so both are divorced. Then when later, Michael and Kathleen meet, and then they are together. In 1992, the couple bought a 14-room dream home on Cedar Street. And five years later, Kathleen and Michael married in 1997. Now, our murder case and the day in question takes place in 2001. By this time, Kathleen is and has been a successful business executive for Norton, making about $150,000 a year. Peterson, Michael Peterson, wrote three novels based around his experiences during the Vietnamese conflict, The Immortal Dragon, A Time of War, and A Bitter Peace are the three titles of his books. He also co-authored several other books, and he worked as a newspaper columnist for the Durham Herald Sun, where his columns became known for their criticism of police and Durham County District Attorney James Harden Jr., mainly because of what Peterson suggested was a lack of ability to, for the local law in order to solve cases and get convictions.
1: Well, let's start with the timeline of the murder. So we'll start a day before the actual event.
0: So on Friday, December 7th, 2001, Kathleen takes the day off from work. That afternoon, the Petersons, Michael and Kathleen, go Christmas shopping. Friday evening, the Petersons attend an event for the North Carolina Independent Party. Michael was involved in politics at different points in his life, so it makes sense that they would be attending this event. Now, on Saturday, December eighth, at approximately three thirty PM, hundreds of files are deleted from Michael Peterson's PC with a disc purging program called Quick Clean. At 441 PM, Michael arrives at the YMCA gym. At approximately six PM the married couple talks about renting a movie for the night at 6 59 PM. Michael rents America's America sweethearts at blockbuster video at 9 45 PM. Christine Tomasetti arrives at the Peterson's home to take Todd, their son to a party. She sees Kathleen and Michael sharing a bottle of wine at this time around 10:20 PM. Christine and Todd leave for this party. At 10.40 p.m., the password Atwater logs into the Peterson's PC. Michael Peterson says that they finished the movie probably around 11 p.m., Uh and then they went to the kitchen and talked for a while. Michael later says that the two would talk at night for two to three hours sometimes, and that he knows that they drank two bottles of wine that night. He does not give a more exact amount of time that they are in the kitchen drinking and talking. But pay attention because the following times are extremely important to our case. At 11:08 pm, Norton Network's co-worker Helen Prislinger later testified that she talked to Kathleen Peterson at this time, and that Kathleen did not sound intoxicated and did not seem abnormal in any way. She did not sense that Kathleen and Michael Peterson were fighting at this time, and he heard Kathleen ask her husband for his email address. Ms. Prislinger said Kathleen needed a document for a teleconference scheduled for 10 a.m. the next day and was expecting an email with that, adoc- with that document attached. The email was, in fact, sent to Michael Peterson's email address at 10.53 p.m., Chryslinger's email arrives. The blank email's PowerPoint attachment was never opened. The attachment was titled Readiness. On Sunday, December 9th, 2001, maybe sometime after midnight, the Petersons drank and talked outside near the pool. Please note, it is about 50 degrees out at night that night at this time. According to Michael, after talking in the kitchen, the two went to the pool and, quote, we were talking here indicates near the pool for a fair amount of time. Again, captain not giving us a great exact understanding of how long he believes they were out there. And at what time did they go to the pool, but indicating that they were outside talking
1: and another statement, he actually says that they're out on the porch for a while. Mm -hmm. Then they go out to the pool area, but uh, Michael was uh, a pipe smoker. So he would smoke his pipe and talk outside so yes it's kind of chilly outside but he's smoking
0: i think kathleen might have been a smoker maybe on some level you know you know we have those people that smoke when they drink right um and i say that because later there was some nicotine found in her body so she could have joined him for a smoke or just took a puff or two uh when they're outside having their conversation
1: but there's also a lot of people that when they drink, it's like uh right when they start drinking, they don't need one. But once they get past a certain point, they need many cigarettes.
0: So right away, I don't see, I don't have any red flags, no major red flags going off regarding Michael Peterson's statements about that night.
1: Just, well, I mean, other than the computer being cleaned.
0: Right, right. That mm-hmm. seems odd, but... On top of that, I mean, as far as what's going down at this point in the evening, 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock, maybe a little bit later, having watched the docu-series, The Staircase, they didn't directly show this, but often when Michael Peterson is kind of doing the one-on-one thing with the camera, I almost always see like little red stains on the side of his lips. Like This comes off to me as a guy that very much likes drinking his wine. Yeah. Um, and so him saying that him and his wife were hanging out on a Saturday night, having a couple bottles of wine does not strike me as weird. It actually, I, I think this is probably exactly what was going down at that time. And we also have the eyewitness that came in to pick up the sun says, Hey, I saw the two hanging out and they were drinking together. Now, according to Michael, this is where I start to wonder about things. Because according to Michael, at approximately 2.30 a.m., he leaves the pool area. He goes inside, and he finds his wife at the bottom of the stairs.
1: Go back. What time did she leave the pool area?
0: Well, that's what's a little bit unclear to me, because he states that we were out here for a fair amount of time talking. We were uh, talking together, and he estimates that she could have left as long as 45 minutes to an hour before he left the pool area or it could have been as little as 30 minutes from when he left the pool area. But during that time, sometime during that time, Kathleen leaves the pool area and heads inside for bed. Michael stays outside to drink and has a smoke. Like you said, then Kathleen at some point suffers multiple deep complex lacerations and avulsions to the scalp, multiple small abrasions and contusions to the face and a fracture with associated hemorrhage of the thyroid cartilage in the neck. So quite a bit of injuries during this time. Right. Now, depending on which report you read, and this is not a major deal because we're talking about a difference of 60 seconds or so, some reports say at 2.40 a.m., some say 2.41 a.m., Michael Peterson calls 911, and that's the 911 call that you heard at the start of this show. Now, the operator picks up and says, Durham 911, where is your emergency? To which Michael replies, uh, 1810 Cedar Street, please. Operator, what's wrong? Peterson, my wife had an accident. She's still breathing. Operator, what kind of accident? Michael Peterson, she fell down the stairs. She's still breathing. Please come. 911, is she conscious? Peterson, what? 911, is she conscious? Peterson, no, she's not conscious. Please. 911, how many stairs did she fall down? Michael Peterson, what? What? 911, how many stairs? Peterson, uh, 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 he's failing to give an answer there regarding the stairs. I get this. Doesn't seem like a question he might have been expecting, whether he's guilty or innocent. The 911 operator tells him to calm down. Calm down, sir. Calm down. Peterson, No damned 1620. I don't know. Please get somebody here right away. Please. 911. Okay. Somebody's dispatching the ambulance while I'm asking you questions. Peterson. It's, uh, Oh, it's forest Hills. Okay. Please, please. 911. Okay, sir. Someone is dispatching the ambulance. Is she awake now? Peterson. Um, um, 911. Hello. Hello, Peterson. Um, um, now that's the end of that call. Asked if she's awake now. Peterson does not give an answer and for whatever reason we don't know but the call is ended. 2:46 a.m. Michael Peterson calls 911 a second time. 911. Durham 911, what is your emergency? Peterson, where are they? It's 1810 Cedar. She's not breathing. Please, please, would you hurry up? 911. Sir. Peterson, can you hear me? 911. Sir. Peterson, yes. 911, sir, calm down. They're on their way. Can you tell me for sure she's not breathing? Sir, hello, hello. At 2.48 a.m., paramedics arrive and Kathleen Peterson is found dead in a hallway. At 3 a.m., police and detectives begin to arrive and search 1810 Cedar Street. At 3.24 a.m., investigators secure the scene. Now, between 4.15 and 5 a.m., Some point Peterson logs onto his office computer and he's overheard mumbling something about email at 5 a.m. Michael Peterson calls his attorney. Now let's go into some more detailed accounts of what took place during this time, shall we? So we have James Rose and Ron page paramedics with the Durham County emergency medical services. They arrive at the Peterson's residence At this same time, Michael's son, Todd Peterson, arrived. The Peterson's house is a large estate home with an open foyer entrance. The paramedics found the front door open and noticed blood on it. Straight ahead through the front door is the large main staircase leading to the second floor. Immediately to the left after entering is a front hallway leading down to the kitchen. Off of this hallway near the kitchen is an enclosed, narrow stairwell, also leading to the second floor.
1: Yeah, kind of. there's a turn in, in the staircase as well.
0: Yeah. And upon entering the house, the paramedics observed Kathleen lying at the bottom of this stairwell. Her legs were out into the hallway and her head was just inside the encased open door frame where the first few steps are located. Now the stairwell runs parallel to the hallway, but has a few angled steps as you had just mentioned at the bottom designed to open up the staircase perpendicular into that hallway. Michael was seen standing over Kathleen in a semi knees bent position with blood on his hands, arms, legs, and feet. He wore shorts and a t-shirt. This t-shirt is partially soaked blood soaked with splatter spots. When paramedics arrived at Kathleen's body, Todd, the son, tried to pull his father away, stating, Dad, she's dead. The paramedics are here. Paramedics Rose and Paige quickly determined that Kathleen had no pulse and she was not breathing. Michael stated that he had gone outside to turn off the lights, came back in, and then found her at the bottom of the steps. Paramedic Rose testified later that there was an enormous amount of blood he said dried blood was on the steps and also on the wall. And it also looked like it had been wiped away or wiped on. It had been smeared instead of just blood droplets on the wall. He testified that based on his experience, there was an unusual amount of blood for a fall and that the most severe injury he had seen from a fall was a broken neck. The blood under Kathleen's head had already clotted and started to harden.
1: So Detective Holland was asked to give his opinion on this scene.
0: Yeah, he's from the homicide unit, and they wanted to bring him in because they were a little confused about what they are seeing, right? there's We have a, a call that a, a person fell down the stairs, that there's been an accident, yet they're seeing a lot of blood, and they're seeing blood in different places throughout the house, which is calling it, They're calling the scene suspicious, right? Mm -hmm. So Holland says that he received a page approximately around three o'clock in the morning and that he was going to arrive at this death investigation. He said that the call he received came in as someone had fallen down the steps. But upon arrival, Detective Holland says this does not look like an accident, forming an immediate opinion. Detective Holland identified himself to Mr. Peterson and even shook his hand and explained to him that he was sorry for his loss, but that it appeared that the scene looked suspicious and it needed to be processed. At trial, Detective Holland was asked, was Michael helpful at that point? Did he answer your initial questions? Detective Holland said no. No, he pretty much was very quiet. Kept to himself, didn't say a whole lot. Now, police videotaped the scene as the officers found it. Michael Peterson's tennis shoes and socks by the foot of the body. White towels soaked red with blood from Kathleen's injury to the back of her head. Blood smears up the oak staircase and on the walls above. Detective Holland called for a crime scene analyst and expert in blood spatter, who in turn told the detective he felt strongly that this was a homicide. For the next 20 hours, officers meticulously photographed and documented what they now regarded as a crime scene. There was a small amount of blood outside on the walkway, bloodstains on the front door, the blood on the kitchen sink, uh, a wine bottle and glasses on the counter. Every inch of the three acre property was combed. Luminol testing revealed bloody footprints leading from Kathleen Peterson's body into the laundry room then going to the kitchen refrigerator and sink, then moving to a wine glass cabinet, which also had blood on it. The footprints mysteriously stopped at the cabinet. They just stopped. Yeah. Later at trial, the defense would challenge the cops on what they didn't do at the Peterson house. The police didn't tape off the area of the stairwell until 3.34 a.m., almost an hour after the call came in. And by then, it was too late. Peterson's lawyers criticized what they called sloppy police procedures. The blood in that area had been altered. The scene at the house had been contaminated. Example. Michael goes up to Kathleen with the police watching, hugs her. Todd takes him, the son, puts him on the couch where there's blood transfer. And then Todd says, can I get some soda in a glass? And the police say, sure. Sure. And he goes, there he goes, Todd walking around the kitchen with blood on his hands. So at trial, police would point out that they found blood in suspicious locations, mainly in different areas of the kitchen. Right. And that these were red flags. However, as I just stated, you can see, you can kind of see why there may have been blood in strange locations throughout the kitchen. And in my opinion, the blood in the kitchen area, for example, was... A complete irrelevancy once you establish that there was contamination there in the kitchen with the police standing right by.
1: Well, they also did tests to make sure that there, there wasn't any cleaning products used in the kitchen to clean up any evidence, and there was none found.
0: Later that day, Dr. Deborah Radish, a pathologist with the Office of the North Carolina Medical Examiner, performed an autopsy on Kathleen's body. Toxicology results showed that Kathleen's blood alcohol content was 0.07%. The autopsy report concluded that Kathleen sustained a matrix of severe injuries, including a fracture of the thyroid neck cartilage and seven lacerations caused by a homicidal assault to the top and back of her head, consistent with blows from a blunt object. The result of repeated blows with a light yet rigid weapon and had died from blood loss 90 minutes to two hours after sustaining the injuries.
1: They also found that she took a volume that night. Later,
0: Michael Peterson's defense disputed this theory. According to their analysis, Kathleen's skull had not been fractured by the blows, nor was she brain damaged, which was inconsistent with injuries sustained in a beating death. Forensic expert Dr. Henry Lee, hired by the defense, testified that the blood spatter evidence was consistent with an accidental fall down the stairs. Police investigators concluded that the injuries were inconsistent with such an accident.
1: We'll get right back to the staircase right after this quick beer break.
0: New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Everyone loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story. It takes you back to the glamour of the 1920s with a diverse cast of characters, You'll step into the role of June Parker and search for hidden clues to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder. Use your observation skills to quickly uncover key pieces of information that lead to chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. And customize your very own luxurious estate island. Think expansive gardens and beautiful buildings. Collect scraps of information to fill your photo album and learn more about each character. And You can chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android.
1: All right. Cheers, mates. Cheers to all. Cheers to everybody.
0: How about some theories, Captain? Let's get into some reasons why the prosecution and law enforcement would believe that Michael Peterson had motive to kill his wife. Okay. So we have Durham County District Attorney James Harden Jr. And the prosecution attacked Peterson's credibility focusing on his alleged misreporting of his military service and what they described as Michael's secret life. And we will get into that in a bit, but first Michael's credibility during a campaign for mayor, Michael, Peterson claimed he was awarded a silver star, a bronze star with valor and two purple hearts. He had all of these medals, but said he did not have the documentation for them. He claimed he received one purple heart after being hit by shrapnel when another soldier stepped on a landmine and the other when he was shot. Peterson later admitted his war injury was not the result of the shrapnel wound in Vietnam, but was the result of a vehicle accident in Japan where he was stationed after the war as a military policeman.
1: Okay, so he was a military policeman. He's hit by a car or he's in a car accident, and mm-hmm. then he claims that he got a Purple Heart for that, but not for that, but for something else.
0: Well, when he's running for mayor, he claims that he sustained big-time, big-time wounds during the course of war. He was inflicted with sh- shrapnel, and then he was also shot, which so, is a much bigger difference than being in a car accident.
1: So we have a liar on our hands. Well, not only that, and and these are big lies. I mean, this is also a guy that wrote three books about the Vietnam war. Right. Right. Fictitious books, I believe, but they centered around the Vietnam war.
0: Well, some articles refer to him as a war hero. Um, I don't know if I would go as far.
1: He's a war zero.
0: Yeah. I mean, I mean, technically I guess in my mind, anybody that serves overseas serves this great country is, some form of hero. The problem I have here is he's elevating himself to a whole different level. And he was obviously not deserving of any of that credit that he was willing to take. I mean, we have, we have men and women that come home to their families in caskets that receive purple hearts, that receive some of the awards that he is claiming that he earned and he didn't. And, and, And like you said, a liar. And these are big, Lies. Another motive for Kathleen's murder would be a 1.5 million dollar life insurance policy. The prosecution witness uh, Raymond Young said that the Petersons were spending about a hundred thousand dollars a year more than they made during the each during each of the three years before Kathleen Peterson's death. Young also testified that when Kathleen Peterson died, the Petersons were carrying more than one. in credit card and credit line debt spread across 20 active accounts. Now, the defense objected to this, unsuccessfully, that Young's credit card information, essentially a report of a report, amounted to hearsay testimony. The defense also complained that Young did not distinguish between different kinds of expenses, such as reoccurring bills and discretionary purchases, During his analysis uh, of Peterson's cash flow, the defense pointed out that young had counted checks written to buy stocks as expenses, but didn't count the sale of those stocks as quote, normal income. The defense also questioned young about why he did not account for the thousands of dollars that flowed through Kathleen Peterson's accounts. When Norton networks, her employer reimbursed her for business expenses. Using Young's own figures of the couple's assets, mortgage liabilities, and credit card debt, the defense showed that the Petersons had a combined net worth of more than $1.4 million. Defense lawyer Thomas Mayer asked, as they sat there that December weekend, even with your analysis, this couple was worth more than $1.4 million. Isn't that correct? That's right, Young
1: replied. So, again, the prosecution is trying to prove that they had some money issues and that would be the motive because then he could collect the insurance check. That kind of backfired on the prosecution. So their next theory for motive is going to be kind of a dark secret.
0: Yeah, this this theory would be that Kathleen's murder uh, was motivated by the discovery of Michael's secret life by Kathleen on the night of the murder. So the prosecutor believed that Kathleen stumbled upon something explosive on the Peterson's home computer, Mm -hmm. downloaded images of naked men. There was two, approximately 2000 of them. There were also liaisons outside of the marriage, a series of email exchanges between Michael Peterson and a local male prostitute he had found through the internet that Kathleen didn't know about. The other man introduced in trial was Brad from Raleigh.
1: So a, he's said, wait, 2000 downloaded naked pictures of dudes.
0: Correct. Pornography on his computer.
1: That's a lot of twig and berries.
0: Well, this guy, Brad from Raleigh was a 20 year old, 26 year old, excuse me, former soldier. And I think he went by the moniker top soldier. His website pick was a beefcake pose complete with dog tags. According to the prosecutor, by late summer 2001, four months before Kathleen's death, Michael Peterson agreed to get with Brad for sex at Peterson's home. Brad on the stand said, we were to hook up, I believe on September 5th, 2001. The prosecutor asked, and what was the price you quoted him? Brad said, I believed it was $150 per hour, but Brad told the court, When the appointed day came around, he was tired and canceled. The prosecutor, so you just simply didn't contact him back at all. Brad stated, I don't think I contacted him that night. I have found out that I contacted him about 25 days later to apologize for not showing up. Prosecutor asked, after you contacted him to apologize for not showing up, did you have further communication with him? Brad, no, ma'am. Brad testified that he and Peterson had never met until they were in court together for the prosecutor. The Brad up episode was to show that the marriage was anything but rock solid and the trail of email messages that became the quote trigger that the state talked about.
1: I I want to throw out something a little strange that I, I noticed during the documentary. One, Brad is very charming on the stand telling jokes he's smart yeah and uh and a good looking guy and at some point michael peterson's daughters are are listening to his testimony and one of the daughters is kind of glowing and the way a girl would be listening to an attractive guy talk and be charming you know she's kind of being smitten by him if that Mm -hmm. makes any sense and then and then (laughs) and then he says something to basically remind the courtroom that He's a gay man and her face like shrivels up.
0: Well, I, I hate to say this, but it's Durham, North Carolina. Um, this is tough for some people in the audience to identify with. Let's say, let's continue on with, with some of the things that Brad said. (laughs) Um, what do I mean by that? I mean, exactly what I said. It's Durham, North Carolina, this testimony, uh, the thought of a bisexual married man uh, going outside of his marriage is going to be tough for people in that audience to identify with. Now, the defense was asked, was that an unusual occurrence for you to have or plan to have sexual relations with, um, with married men? Right. Brad stated, to the contrary, married men are in the majority of most of the clients that I saw when I was an escort. The defense, with regards to the kinds of men that you tended to have escort relationships with, can you give us some indication as to their professions, for example? Brad answered, Sure. Usually they are professionals because my fees are quite high. I saw doctors, attorneys, and one judge.
1: (laughs) And then the judge says, Not this judge.
0: Right. And it was noted. It was noted in, in the court transcript. The defense then asked, did a number of the men, the married men that you had sexual relations with have wives that knew they were bisexual? Brad stated, I believe most of them did from my experience. Yeah. The defense asked in your experience, was it unusual for a wife married to a bisexual man to know that he was bisexual? Brad's answer was not at all. The defense asked, was it unusual for a bisexual man using your services to be in a happy marriage? Brad answered, not at all. Most of the men who would see me would have their time with me and then go back to their happy, healthy lives. It's not unusual to be loved by anyone. The defense asked, was there any kind of personal relationship involved between you and Michael Peterson? Brad stated, no, sir. I believe in one of the emails, it was very explicit that there would be no emotions involved, no personal relationships involved, and it would be strictly physical.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think he also stated he loved his wife and they had a really good marriage.
0: You're, you're, you're exactly right. The defense asked, did Michael Peterson ever do or say anything either on the phone or by email to indicate that he was not in love with Kathleen Peterson? Brad answered to the contrary. In his emails, unlike most of my clients, he indicated that he had a great relationship. Most clients don't want to say anything about their relationship. He said he had a warm relationship with his wife and nothing would ever destroy that. The defense showed the jury Peterson's own words in an email to Brad, which stated, quote, I am married, very happily married with a dynamite wife. Yeah. The prosecution alleged that Kathleen would have been infuriated by learning that her husband was having an extramarital relationship, not with another woman, but a man. Their statement that once she learned this information, that an argument ensued and then a homicide occurred. The defense argued that Kathleen accepted Michael's bisexuality and that the marriage was very happy, a position supported by Michael and Kathleen's children and other friends and associates. Now we do know that Caitlin, so Caitlin is technically Kathleen's daughter from her first marriage. Yeah. Caitlin stopped supporting Michael Peterson, When this information was disclosed. So let's jump back to the children, shall we? Mm -hmm. We have children of Michael Peterson from his first marriage. That's Clayton and Todd, his two sons.
1: And they support
0: him. Correct. And then we have children of George and Elizabeth Ratliff who are both deceased, but were raised by Michael Peterson. This is Margaret and Martha.
1: Yeah. They both support him as well.
0: Correct. Then we have the daughter of Kathleen Peterson, uh, Mm -hmm. Caitlin Atwater. She initially proclaimed Michael's innocence and publicly supported him, but after learning of Peterson's bisexuality and after reading her mother's autopsy report, she broke off from the rest of the family.
1: This motive is kind of hard to decide if it could even work as a motive because you don't know. If his wife knew about his bisexual.
0: Yeah, I agree. Captain for me, it kind of like, you know, I, I fancy myself a pretty open-minded dude. And for me, it really just kind of put me at the top of the fence, you know, where I could see one side and see the other side and mainly practically agree with both sides. You know, I think what they did here is I think the prosecution made a strong case that this could no. be a motive. I think the defense did a good job of stating maybe this is no motive at all.
1: Right. Cause if she knew and she, and that was the arrangement that their marriage had where, and even Brad, the escort said that he felt that most of his clients were mainly heterosexual with some homosexual tendencies. Mm-hmm. And so it was just kind of, you know, maybe a percentage Well, they're, Eighty uh, percent straight, twenty uh, percent gay, or whatever it is, and and so if that's the arrangement that their marriage had, then who are we to say how they should live their life or or how they should conduct their marriage? Right. That, that that's on them. But the issue here then becomes, as far as like the children go, did you have any knowledge of this? Did you did you even have a thought process that? your father was doing this. Mm-hmm. So that would be, so I can see why this children are supportive. I can see why they would not be. And cause I also think it. if you didn't know, and now they're saying that your, your mom knew, but you had no proof. Well, again, we have him lying about his war record. Now he was not, you know, not lying, but not telling the full truth to his children about his sexuality so so you,
0: I don't question that so much because I don't know that I don't know that if I had children, if I would share, you know, the, the things that I'm into with them, I don't think there's that's well, a weird so conversation this, to have
1: this podcast. Is no. So I, I don't, worse. I, I know what I mean is that they, they might feel like it was another way of being lied to is what I'm saying.
0: No, I agree with that. But what I'm stating is that I don't find the children not knowing to be weird right you know i i i don't of course if they knew then obviously i'd be convinced that there was no problem with this thing but if they didn't know that doesn't to me suggest that there is a problem and actually furthermore you know somebody i was talking to to said hey so really the sole question regarding the state's case is did kathleen know or did she not know and I said, well, I see what you're saying there, but however, it's not necessarily did she know or did she not know, it's right. was she okay with it if she did know?
1: Right, and they're trying to present a motive. The problem with this is, especially in a marriage, there could be thousands of different motives that we would never know hmm. because there could be hundreds of conversations that they had in private that nobody even knew about. Hmm. See what I mean? So it's like they're just trying to establish... A motive, and like you said, they, they do a good job. Prosecution does of presenting it. Defense does a great job of deflecting it, and so yeah, it kind of puts you on the the center of the post.
0: Yeah, and I think what they did was they both present their side, and then it's left up to the members of the jury to figure out what side they fall to and what right. they believe actually occurred. One thing though that I do question here is his defense was very good. I thought it was a good team, a smart group of people. They questioned a lot of things. They defended him very well. The thing that, that did not happen. And I know it doesn't exist because I know that they were smart enough that they would have presented this at trial was they couldn't prove that Kathleen Peterson knew that Michael was bisexual, right? They couldn't prove that Kathleen was okay with it. So you know that a conversation took place between the the head defense attorney and Michael Peterson that there's a sit down in a closed room where he says to Michael, Michael, is there anything anywhere, any proof that you can show me that Kathleen knew and that she was okay with it? Or right. was there any proof that you can show me that she at least knew that gets us over one speed bump, right? Yeah. And so that didn't exist. And when you have Michael Peterson, who talks about this, he's a little vague too. Don't you, wouldn't you agree? He says, yeah, she knew. Uh, did you guys talk about it? No, it wasn't really something we spoke about, but
1: again, but this is a, this is a tricky thing because these are conversations behind closed doors. And could it be a situation where she's like, okay, I understand that. I mean, they could have been, you know, they develop into a relationship and he says to her, I have this side of me Mm -hmm. that I like to explore. And she might've said, that's fine with me. Don't want to hear about it. Right. You know, just as long as you're not being with other women. Right. That that could have been the agreement. Who knows? You know what I mean? Uh, And that's, I don't know. It's, it's, it's very tricky.
0: And again, though, I stick by what I said where, It's less important that Kathleen knew. It's more important that she was either okay with it or not okay with it. Well, let's
1: start with the idea of should this even been been allowed in the courtroom. And I believe the judge said later that he almost wishes that he would have just said, no, we can't talk about this. And the reason why was because he was afraid, you know, it's in the South. Would it be prejudicial basically right basically if you bring up that this guy is is bisexual would there just be one or two people on the jury that would just find him guilty because he's bisexual
0: right and i think for me if i were the judge or the prosecutor my argument that it would would it be in the trial and I understand. Don't send a weird email that I'm claiming that the judge and prosecutor work together. I understand the way the system works. But what I mean by this is it's a part of the state's case, right? The state's case is that Kathleen Peterson that night stumbled upon information she found on his computer that suggested that this kind of activity was going on. Therefore, she confronted him about that that night. They got into an argument and he beat her to death. Right, that's but, the state's case,
1: yeah. But that's because the other motive wasn't going to stick so well. So when they found this, I think it was more about let's make this a part of our motive, so we can bring up the fact that he has almost this double life. And and I because I do think that shows something. If she didn't know about the double life, and his kids didn't know about the double life, and it seems like nobody nobody knew about the double life, then it's like, then what is he capable of? you don't know because you don't really know the real person.
0: I agree with that. But what I mean by it goes with the state's cases. If you follow the timeline of events of known events that night, not what Michael Peterson says, but what others state right, is that Kathleen Peterson was using his computer that night to receive information from her work. We know right. that from her coworker who says, I overheard Kathleen asking him for his email address and we have the password being accessing the computer. And so the state's case would be this was a computer that she didn't often use or didn't regularly use, maybe used it for the first time, who knows, and discovers this information there that night. And when confronting Michael about it, it turns into uh, an argument that leads to him killing her.
1: Yeah, I think the other thing, too, about this is we have – some kind of record that he's trying to use software to clean the computer. Mm-hmm. So, what did the prosecution find? What did the investigation find on his computer afterwards? And was that supposed to have been cleaned off of his computer and wasn't?
0: Well, there you was. A, I mean, there was at least all of those pornographic pictures of men. Right, but were computer. they
1: were they supposed to be wiped away?
0: I don't. I don't know what his intent. I don't know who. We can't say for certain who who applied that uh, computer scrubbing software to the computer? We can't say for certain. All we can say is that it was used. And so if we can't say who was using it, it's tough to gauge the uh, intentions of the user.
1: I think the thing here too is that sometimes when people hear the wife finds out that he's having affairs with men and they start thinking, well, why would he kill her because of that? It's like, well, no, because that's going to lead to divorce that could lead to separation that could lead to, I mean, he's not making a lot of money
0: or even he just lost it in the heat of the moment. Right. And the thing that I think, or
1: embarrassment, maybe he didn't want people to know
0: the thing that's interesting here, though. I, I, I differ from you where I think that the, the, the secret life that the state claims he was hiding from his wife I think that if we're going to look at the state's case as a cake, I look at that to be the cake and that the money motive would have just been icing on the cake. It would have been another, another example, another reason why, but what's interesting is, and I didn't see anybody point this out during the portions of the trial that I was able to view was the defense, I think I would have attacked that as the defense because on one end you're saying wait, one motive is money? Well then that would be premeditated. That would be me sitting here right. realizing we have money problems. How can I fix it? Oh, I'm going to kill my wife. Right. The other is she finds my gay pornography mm-hmm. that I'm a big huge fan of that I'm 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 enjoying that while she's at work, I guess. I
1: am, I'm going to edit that out of the show.
0: And <laughs> and then she, she confronts me. We get into some kind of argument, and then I kill my wife. Well, that's two different things. That's right. a, one's in in the heat of the moment. I lost it and I killed my wife. The other is premeditated. Right. So can one the the state never builds a bridge to connect the I'm sitting at home planning on how I'm going to kill her to I lost it, erupted one night and killed
1: her. Yeah, and ones with a boner, ones without. There you go.
0: Well, that is a good segue into the possible murder weapon. Um, the prosecution said that the murder was most likely committed with a custom made fireplace poker called a blow poke. It had been a gift to the Petersons from Kathleen's sister, but was missing quote unquote missing from the house at the time of the murder investigation.
1: And Kathleen's sister actually gave a bunch of people in their family. These blow pokers.
0: Yeah. I think she gave it to her, her, parents and to some other people in the family um her sister candace kathleen peter's sister candace when asked about the blowpoke, said yes it was always in the kitchen stating that she had used it and had observed kathleen using it and that it was always located in the kitchen
1: well it's a big house so we have a kitchen that's connected to a little room and there's a little fireplace by that so anytime you see like home video footage you'll see a little kitchen and you pan and you'll see a fireplace and it's normally it was sitting there um, and you actually see at one point in the documentary one of the daughters going back through old like Christmas footage to try to find out when the poker disappeared
0: mm-hmm. well you have the prosecution which would tell the jury that you've got to realize he meaning Michael Peterson had several hours that he could clean up and in the prosecution's opinion, they think that that is when the blow poke was removed from the property. Right. Now, the problem with that, as the defense would later point out, the defense claimed that the blow poke was later found inside the home right. covered with cobwebs and dead insects, implying that police and everyone else had just simply overlooked it. It was not hidden, said the defense, because it was never used. It was not the murder weapon in the first place. Forensic tests revealed that the blow poke had been untouched and unremoved. I'm sorry, unmoved for far too long to have been used in the murder.
1: Yeah. And people ask, well, how did they not find this? Well, they had a garage like in the basement, mm-hmm. part of the basement had a garage door and he had a, some car he was working on. And it was kind of hidden in the corner, like not hidden on pers- purpose, but, Probably what happened was he was messing with the fire one day, was working on his car, went downstairs working on his car, and put the poker beside it. And then because there's other tools and other pipes and stuff around, cops just probably just didn't see it. They probably also didn't look that hard.
0: I also think that at least that night and the following day, they didn't realize that that would be a potential murder weapon. Right. You know, So even if you it that night or the next day, you don't care because it's not of significance at that time. I actually think that what probably happened is it was an item that went unused up near the fireplace itself. And at some point, you know, that's where things in the basement, in the garage, that's how they get there. Sometimes there are things that are just not used and you go, I'll put it out in the garage. I'll put it out in the basement. And like you said, things start to pile up and collect around it. And then it may appear years later to have been hidden, but rather it's just simply placed there.
1: Well, the pointed poker and was missing and the round end that the poker would go into Mm -hmm. was bent. And so I wonder if he's working on this old car and he has an old jack and he's not able to jack it up with the crowbar if he went and grabbed this poker to use it to jack up the car.
0: That's an interesting thought. They they don't really present any of that, though, at
1: at trial. Yeah, but this guy, (laughs) the other problem with Michael Peterson, look, we all like to drink. It's a good time. The problem is it makes your memory do you a little f- blurry.
0: That's interesting you say that. I was just going to ask you, do you find him to be a forgetful person? Or is he conveniently forgetful?
1: No, I think he I mean I just I think he's getting he was getting older and I think he didn't remember a bunch of stuff. Like he's like when they find the poker, he's even like I don't know I don't know why I would be there. Right. Or how I got there. And it's like Maybe it was from you. Maybe it was from one of your kids. That's the other, here's the other issue here. We don't have little kids. We have adult adults. So they're doing a lot of stuff in the, you know, when you're a kid, if there was something, if there was a hammer misplaced in the garage and you're five years old, it's, it's from your father was misplacing the hammer. Mm -hmm. Chances are you weren't messing with the hammer, but when you're 20 years old, and you're messing with cars and who knows what happened. One of them might've used it. Then they forget. I just think he's also, he's getting up there in age and he has some effects from that. So
0: I think a couple of things here regarding his memory. First, I'm going to go back to the wine drinking. I I actually think Michael Peterson probably liked to indulge in quite a bit of wine drinking. I think yeah. him him saying that they had two bottles of wine that night might have been conservative. I think he might have had two bottles of wine that night, and she helped drink some other bottles of wine well, with it. Well, yeah,
1: but isn't that what you do? I mean, if you're hanging out with your wife or you're hanging out with some friends, it's like... You eh, don't count
0: eh. drinks. You just drink and talk and have a good time.
1: Yeah, I mean, when you're a kid, you count drinks. When you're 20, you're going, ah, I'm up to 10 beers, all right. Mm-hmm. When you're an adult, you actually go less. Mm-hmm. I've only had six. Mm-hmm. You know you had 10. You know what I mean?
0: That's well. Know. I th- I think the, a com a combination of a few things. One, this guy has seen wartime, so there could be some uh, PTSD from that. The effects yeah, of a, that, and, the, and very think, difficult wartime. I think as well as there's probably been a history of nights, consecutive nights of drinking wine, or maybe even a lot of wine or alcohol.
1: Yeah. And once he puts on those fake medals, he got. I mean, he. <laughs> They probably weigh him down a little bit, and he probably trips and falls a lot because of it.
0: He's getting older, so I think a combination of those three things lends to him being forgetful and maybe not so much conveniently forgetful. Right. The other vibe, too, and I have no proof of this. This is just a gut feeling that I got when watching the his children and the way that they spoke about their household and the family. Right. And one thing I do want to point out here is It seemed to be a very close family. Even though it was a bit of a patchwork quilt, it was a close family to the extent that I hear his children, Michael's children, referring to Kathleen as mom over and over again. And I also hear her daughter refer to Michael as dad. Yeah,
1: so the, the two adopted kids, they call their mom, their real mom, their birth mom. Mm-hmm. And they call Kathleen their mom mom. Yeah. They, they took away the whole stepmom or whatever. Right. And I think, and who knows, maybe there was a conversation about it, but you know, that that's also a, them showing respect to her. She is, uh, made them a part of her life. She treated them exactly like daughters. We're going to treat you just like a mother. I think that's, and also you got these very well rounded, smart, intelligent kids they seem well adjusted. Oh yeah. Yeah. And they seem well adjusted and they have all this craziness that's going on with their lives. You know what I mean? Like you would expect them to be like, okay, maybe, maybe our mom died accidentally. Maybe our father murdered her. We're not for sure. You would think that the hinges, you know, the hinges would come off and they're not. Mm -hmm. And that's a sign of, how you were raised and how you're raised is not always the lessons that you were taught. It's the actions that you were shown. Right. So meaning, and then again, every friend, every family member says they had a loving marriage. That, that means something.
0: All right, captain, we have so much stuff to get to. Do we have enough time you think to get into some of the blood experts that testified during the trial? Yes. Okay. So, The state's blood spatter expert told the jury that he was certain Kathleen Peterson was beaten to death because the droplet patterns of blood and spray on the steps and walls of the stairwell were just what he expected to see. If you imagine a weapon rising, striking, rising, casting off blood up the wall with each new blow, right? and blood found on the inside, lower leg of Michael Peterson's shorts confirms his theory. He said he saw evidence of an attempt to clean up some of the blood on the stairwell. Of course his his testimony was much longer and lengthier than this. That's the Team Nick
1: simplified version. Yeah, but it's also he's stating that she's hit with a blunt object. That's what's creating these marks on Kathleen's head, mm-hmm. but there is no cast off. Like if she was hit in the head, there would be a cast off, meaning blood is coming from an object. There'd be a cast off. Normally that would hit the ceiling. Okay. From her height. Mm-hmm. So
0: he, he's saying that there was cast off on the wall with each new blow and that he expected to see.
1: Um, yeah, and during his testimony, he's going to show you a bunch of experiments he did to try to get these, to recreate these patterns. Mm-hmm. And so it's basically that that she gets hit one time, Kathleen then falls, and then all the rest of the hits would happen while she's on the ground. Mm-hmm. Making the spot from the inside of his shorts makes sense. Right. Because he would be on top of her. Uh, Or standing over her. And that would be the reason there'd be no cast off on Mm -hmm. the ceiling. So it's, it's almost like he has this picture. Now he has to figure out how we got there. Right. 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 If that makes sense.
0: And well, in, in a way though, the defense is going to have to do the same thing or try to do the same thing. Right. When they put on a celebrity expert witness, Dr. Henry Lee, Now, I'm sure most of our listeners are familiar with Henry Lee. He's been in several of the more well-known cases, including uh, he was involved in the O.J. Simpson case. Now, Lee explained that the blood spatter, uh, he explained it in a theatrical manner. He swigged a small amount of ketchup, took a deep breath, and then spit it out, replicating, he said, the victim of the fall coughing up blood, staggering about the stairwell. Yeah. The result, he says, blood spatter up the wall of the staircase and on the inside leg of Peterson's shorts, as he tended to her. Dr. Lee told the jury that the copious blood spatter on the back staircase convinced him. Kathleen Peterson had died of a fall, not a beating. So if you're trying to, forgive me if you're trying to picture this at home what he's talking about is he's saying she fell and as she's laying there she's coughing up blood she's breathing blood and that is what is projecting that blood onto the wall behind her
1: right and they also believe at some point she tried to get up which would explain the blood that's on the bottom of her feet but also explain like if she did try to get up and she slipped that her body would have moved so she's more outside of the door, her head still inside the doorway. Again, once she then continues to cough up blood at that position would account for some of the rest of the blood splatter.
0: Yeah. To, to help the jurors imagine how a woman uh, would fall and end up like this, that they're indicating, you know, keep in mind, Kathleen was in flip-flops. Uh, she was medicated with Valium. She might be tipsy with having drinking wine that night no no
1: not not might be tipsy i mean one of the things that people really should look up is the effects of volume the effects of a volume are pretty much the same effects as far as alcohol is concerned but once you mix both of them times it by 10 let's say right so one of the major effects is dizziness a loss of balance Um, and so you're talking about a very odd staircasing i I almost argue that that staircasing should have been made where you just go into a little square room turn to the right and then you go up the steps
0: so there would be no initial stairs directly in front of you so the stairs basically if you walked into this into this uh, stairwell
1: it's almost like a mini spiral staircase. It, it into looks a like staircase. a staircase, like
0: a closet that you're walking into almost right. And you take a couple of steps and then you turn to your right and you go up the rest of the stairs. Yeah. And the stairs to your right, there's quite a bit more stairs there than what would be at the bottom straight ahead of you. Now, like the captain pointed out, you're right. it would have been a safer situation to just have that be a flat landing there as if you are walking into a closet. Turn to your right and then go directly up the stairs without right. turning. So the other thing too is this would be. Would you call this like um, you know how they have some older homes they have like servant quarters and and right that's you know that's probably what it's it probably be. what this is is a second staircase for people to work behind the scenes of mm-hmm. a big house like that. It's been referred to as a mansion. I I think you could call it that i think that's somewhat of an accurate description
1: it's a big house but here's what's weird though too is because you have this weird landing at the bottom and you have these steps that actually curve whether you fall by accident whether you fall by getting push whether you fall because you got pulled down whether you fall because you got hit by something once you're in that area you're on multiple levels that aren't level and so by trying to get up by trying to move you are then going to be pushed. If there's any blood, you're going to be pushing a lot of blood around you. There's, it's very possible that you could make a big mess in this small area because of the, the floor not being level.
0: Not only that, the turn and how narrow this space is on a normal staircase, you might not be able to spit or cough that much blood onto the wall because you would be more centered. You would be more away from the wall. Right. And it's, Man, it, when you see the scene, the the pictures of the scene, you're like it's a lot of blood. It's a lot. It's an- it's enough blood to the point where you're like, did he beat her head against the wall for an hour? Like it. I mean, the blood is. Um, it. I mean, it's traumatic to see it, right. and, and and I can see how the state and how the investigators jump to this is a murder this is not an accident there's there's too much blood here
1: i mean when you see the initial photos the first thought is this is not an accident right but then it then it becomes odd too because you you have her feet covered in blood and you just wonder if she tried to get up again that does not blood on her feet does not determine whether she was hit pushed or she fell
0: well, and the state is going to try to point out to the jurors that a woman in flip-flops, medicated with Valium, had been drinking. All of this could have been a combination that might have led to a fall. And the, the body motion expert showed in an animation that Kathleen climbs the stairs to go to bed. She suddenly loses her balance, falls backwards from the fourth step, hitting her head on the molding, cutting open a nasty wound to her scalp
1: yeah which is roughly a v-shape
0: and she's stunned she tries to get up but she slips in a puddle of her own blood falls again and then now she's doomed to lay there and bleed out
1: well we also have impact points on the molding in the staircase Mm -hmm. and one of the impact points they basically it's it's science the you know this Oh, I I don't remember what he was called. Bio. Mm, I don't I, know. I but can't remember. It was, but, but we're with you, Captain. The, what he did was they, they basically made a model of her, her height, her mm-hmm. weight. If she fell at this point, then she would have hit that frame. The likely would have hit here. Right. She would have hit here about this height. Well, we have matching impact points based off the science the they did. Mm. So, uh, I don't know. I mean, they try to discredit this guy. I thought he was very credible. But that, I think the problem with this guy is the prosecution should have pu- pushed more. Okay, this is true if she fell from the third step or the fourth step or whatever. But th- all these things are also true if she got pulled down at that step Correct. or pushed down at that step. So, again, I believe, I think what he is stating happened or is, is most likely what happened. Okay. But I think that doesn't prove if somebody helped her or not. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't prove other theories, whether those are true or not either. We we'll can get to those later.
0: A couple of things, though, here regarding what you just stated was, you know, I didn't count the stairs, the number of steps.
1: It's, it's 15 to 20.
0: Is what I think he says in the <laughs> 911 call. But so let's, let's use that as, as the general math, right? Let's say it's 15 steps. What, what I think you point out here, which is interesting is that the prosecution, once they hear, Hey, she felt this guy says she fell from the fourth step and this is how, where she hit. And this explains her injuries where the prosecution failed then was they said they could have said, well, that's one out of 15 steps mathematically it's less likely that she fell from that exact step than any of these. You know what I mean? Right. She, she likely could have fallen from another step and therefore those impact points don't match up with your theory. The other thing that you pointed out that's interesting is they never bothered to present the idea that maybe she was pushed down the stairs, Right. that she was at a different location and pushed down the stairs. They stuck with the, she was struck with the blunt object yeah, and, and the beat bl- to death
1: and the blunt object. Let's just cover that real quick. The issue with her being struck with a blunt object is going to be that there is no brain swelling. There's no brain. Um, there's no fractures to there's the no skull fractures to the skull. And there's no um, brain bruising either, which sometimes you won't get a fracture, but you have a brain bruise underneath And none of those three, three things happen. So you'd have to uh, basically hit so lightly that you don't cause any fracture.
0: Yeah. So for those of you that have not seen the staircase or are unfamiliar with this case, picture this. Most people are familiar with a fire poker that you would have at any normal fireplace. Okay. It's, it's, I've never
1: had a hollowed one though.
0: So th- that's the only, that's really the only difference between a blow poke and a, a fire poker. Right. Is that it's hollowed so that when you poke at the fire, you can blow, adding air that would then spread the sparks or spread the fire uh, inside your fireplace. Right. It's like stoking the fire. Um, so the only difference here is that this item would be, we can. Assume that it's lighter than a traditional fire poker because it's hollow, right. but it still has that jagged end, that end. Right. And what the captain's trying to point out is the thing that I can't get over is if somebody is attacking somebody with a weapon or an object shaped like that, that how in the hell are you going to be able to strike the skin of the skull with enough force to create these lacerations? And these are big gashes but be precise enough or, or get, I guess, lucky enough that in the process of creating those lacerations, you didn't fracture the skull at all. It seems inconceivable to me.
1: Well then, right. And, but then everybody believes that she had to be clawed with something, maybe fingernails, or maybe she was clawed by, um, the, the poker end, Mm -hmm. right. Um, because she has these lacerations again, they're getting up in age. Your, your skin becomes thinner. It is possible that you could bump into something hard enough that would not create brain bleed, brain bruising, or a fracture, but still puncture the skin and therefore creating, you know, a massive amount of blood.
0: And basically, the defense is not going to deny that these injuries occurred, that these lacerations to her scalp occurred. Right. But they're basically their answer is stating, look, she had several points of impact where her head would have impacted with something else, and it didn't necessarily tear the skin open. Some of that is the sp- the skin splitting. Hit. You know, once you hit upon impact, that it's a cut as well as the skin splitting. They yeah. created these strange shaped lacerations well, the, on her,
1: her, the back of her head. Right. The analogy they were using is if you take like a watermelon or pretty much any melon and, and you drop it on the ground, it's not going to just
0: break ha- in half.
1: It's not going to just have one point of impact. Mm-hmm. It, it's going to actually split. So is it possible that she hit her head against the frame, the framing of the wall, and that caused one split or possibly two splits? Uh, I mean it's it's possible i mean and and that's what um the one eyewitness that did the bio whatever it was called mm-hmm. uh, test that that they proved that it was possible
0: some circumstantial evidence captain, the officers uh called by the prosecution noted that the husband Michael Peterson, his sneakers and bloody socks, they noted this and stated that this is odd because Michael was barefoot upon paramedics arrival to the home. And they asked the question, how did one of those same sneakers leave a bloody footprint on the backside of his dead wife's sweatpants, the side facing the floor? There was testimony from other prosecution witnesses that Peterson had tried to clean a large stain of blood off of the front of his shorts. Now, some other details on the kitchen counter, police saw. Well, hold
1: on. Let's stay with his shorts for a second. His shorts were soaked in blood. Right. And so, again, was he trying to clean off a a section or was he wiping his hands off? Because his hands were covered in blood, too. Mm -hmm. So that's where it gets tricky with some of this stuff. It's like there's a lot of blood. If he was trying to help her, if he picked her up, up and got blood all over his hands. Then he tried to wipe that on his pants. Wiping that on your pants is going to look the same as if you're trying to wipe it off your pants.
0: Some other details on the kitchen counter. Police saw a bottle of wine and two glasses neatly arranged, uh, implying perhaps the couple had passed a relaxing evening at home, sipping wine together. The problem with that cozy image though, according to the prosecution is that His dead wife's fingerprints weren't on either glass. The prosecutor argued that Peterson had prominently set out the bottle and glasses to suggest that Kathleen had too much to drink and had tumbled down the stairs inebriated. The defense presented the idea that the police may have had it in for the husband once they realized he was. Was the same Michael Peterson taking regular pot shots at them in his newspaper column, accusing them of only solving a small fraction of crimes and not getting a handle on drug trafficking in the city. And maybe this was payback time.
1: Make sure you go to TrueCrimeGarage.com. Go to our store page. The Team Nick shirts are on sale because of his birthday. In honor of Nick's birthday, he is 21 and a half. We celebrated his half birthday. Also, new Team Captain V-necks. They're in the store. Check those out. For all of our old episodes, check us out on Stitcher. And they're all free. From show one to now, you can find them on Stitcher for free
0: plus we have our great show off the record on Stitcher Premium.
1: Wait, hold on real quick. Our our off the record shows are supposed to be 20 30 minutes long, something like that. And lately we, <laughs> we've been putting out hour long episodes. So if you're looking for some more garage in your life, get off the record.
0: Join us back here in the garage tomorrow for part 2 of the staircase. Until then, be good, be kind, and don't listen.